All right, so when I was growing up, um, I knew something about Mr. Rogers in his neighborhood. I was on actually on a plane just recently, and I had the opportunity to watch uh, the new film that stars Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Right, you all know the song, right? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. I won't, I'm going to stop there because you don't want me to keep going, believe me. But let me say this to the kids. I, I see a few kids right now also online. You have no idea who Mr. Rogers is, and I am so sorry. Uh, for, those, for your parents, and, and myself included, like we grew up on Mr. Rogers, the PBS program, Shelby, and it was awesome. And uh, there, in, the, in the film, if you've seen the film, or maybe saw the documentary that actually just came out two years ago as well, but in the film version, Tom Hanks, there's this one scene, if you know the kind of the, the setup, it's actually based upon a long-form article that a journalist for Esquire magazine wrote about uh, Mr. Rogers. And, and when he comes to visit on set in Pittsburgh, where he was filming, there's this one scene where... Uh, where Mr. Rogers is, is on his knee in front of a child, and that child and his parents have come to visit Mr. Rogers on the set, and they're supposed to have already started. <laughs> like They were already supposed to be filming. And, and, and the, the, they're rolling their eyes, the producer and some of the assistants, because they're waiting for Mr. Rogers to stop visiting with this child. And the film does a great job of bringing it out because he gets down you know, on his knee, just the same, same height as that child, and is just, it's as if the world has stopped and this child is the only person in the world that matters. And the film, what it does, and what Mr. Rogers did on that program is put on flesh compassion to really bring out the flavor of, of love. This morning, we are going to finish our series, the series entitled The Story of Us, Scripture and Race, and we're doing so by, by looking at one of these attitudinal passages, we'll call it. Know that earlier on in the series, we've done things like looking at grace and, and looking at humility, and today we're looking at love, saying that though the, the issue right here in the text is not specifically race, as most of the passages were in the series, but there are a few of them where we want to sprinkle in and look at the attitudes that we should have towards race, or for that matter, any issue. And it seemed really important to me that we finish this series talking about love. And so this morning, what Paul says here is that love is like oxygen to the lungs. It is essential to life. If you don't have love, you, you have death. You don't have life itself, is in essence what he says here. And though we sing our songs, right, we, we watch the movies that talk about love constantly, most of us probably walk away from listening to those songs, watching those movies, and saying, this seems like a pretty shallow vision of love. And what Paul gives us here is the meat and potatoes. He gives us the full version of what it is. And what he says, lastly here in the introduction, I want you to hear this, is that it should be transformative. It should change us. Pastor Tim Keller, he great illustration. I like this one, so I borrowed it from him. He says that, that transformation is sort of like the difference between a can, like a Coke can that you crush. And when you crush it and you take your hand off of the pressure off, it's been changed. It's been transformed, right? But if you were to take a rubber ball in your hand and you were to squeeze it as hard as you can, right, it's going to go, it's going to take its shape again. As soon as you restrain or take the restraint off, it's going to become what it was before, no change. And what, what Paul says is that the world's understanding of love isn't truly transformative. 
It may change your behaviors, but it won't change your heart. You need something that transforms and changes permanently your heart, and this is what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. Three things I want us to see this morning. Number one, I want us to see how beautiful it is. Number two, that it's like the auction, the necessariness of it for us, the necessity, and finally, the impossibility of it. That may surprise you, that last one, that I would say it's actually impossible but I think it'll make sense once we get here to the end of the passage. So first here, let's jump in with verses 4 through 7. We're going to start there, then work our way back to 1 through 3 here in a second. It says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In the ancient world, there were three different words in, in the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in. Three different words for love. And, and two were very common in the ancient world. The first one was phila, which means brotherly love, friendship love. I used to live in the city of Philadelphia. City of brotherly love is what that literally means, which is so ironic because if you're a sports fan, you know that in Philadelphia, they hate their own teams there. It's so ironic. The city of brotherly love. Their, their sports fans are literally called the Boo Birds because they were the only team that will, the only city that will boo their own team consistently. But I digress. But there's another word that's also very common in the ancient world, and, and that was eros. We get erotic love from it. It means sexual love or, or physical love. Not just when we think of eroticism, that sense of eroticism, but it means any sort of physical affection. It's, it's that understanding of love. And of course, just as it dominated the ancient world, that sort of love certainly dominates our culture today. But the last word for love, which dominates the Scriptures, it is the only word used here in this passage, was a word that was exceedingly rare in the ancient world. And it's the word agape. And agape means unconditional love. It is a love that is permeated, permeated through with grace and mercy, we would say. As Paul says here, love endures all things. It bears all things. This is the sort of love that is dominating the culture of the Bible. It is the love that's on display here, and yet it's a word that in the ancient world was hardly ever seen, exceedingly rare. And I think we'll discover why here in a second. But I want you to see here that these, there are 15 different verbs in verses 4 through 7 alone. 15 different ways of expressing to us what love is. And I say verbs because it's very important. We, we often think of love as sort of like a state of mind, or we, we think it as a sentimental feeling. But what Paul says here is, you know, love is an action. It's dynamic. It's, it's constantly giving itself out. It's not self-focused. It's not self-centered. It's other-centered. It's on the move. And it's more than an attitude. It's a practice of living, in essence, he says here. Yeah. And what he wants, wants you, what he wants for me, what he wanted for his original audience is to get clear on how, how different this understanding of love is from the understanding of love around us. Some of you probably, when you actually heard this passage, you thought, man, am I at a wedding? Right? You know, like, where's the groom? Where's the bride? You know, we even have the, the middle way here. Like, oh, just waiting for them to come down the aisle. I mean, this is such a common passage. And, and one of our staff members said at staff meeting this week, 
when we were looking at this passage, she said, man, this is such a cliche passage, and it's unfortunate because it's so rich, she said, and she's right. But it's a passage that many ministers will use. Ironically, I, I, don't, I have never used it in a wedding before, but it, I've seen it used at a wedding. You probably have as well. Perhaps it was even at your wedding. And it's because it's such a good passage. And what, and what the minister is trying to say to that, that soon-to-be bride and groom is they're trying to say, hey, listen, listen this is what love is. This is what should uh, you know, permeate your marriage. This is what should permeate and pervade your home is this understanding of love. And so I want you to get clear, Paul would say, on the definition of love so that you might become the man or the woman that you were designed to be. And what, in, in a very gracious, loving way, what, what Paul wants for his church here in Corinth in this letter is he wants them to almost outdo each other, and not in a performance in a in a works-driven way, but he wants them to be so focused on love, this other-centered love, that they don't need to be self-centered in their love, that they're constantly meeting the needs of their spouse, they're constantly meeting the needs of their friends, they're constantly meeting the needs of their church family. And, and the reason why I began here by saying that the first thing that we need to see here is that love is beautiful is because you probably have said something to this effect. You've said, man, they've got a beautiful marriage. Now, that's a phrase that we will often hear and use, but, but why did you use that phrase? Why, what is beauty? Beauty means awe. It means to look longingly, to gaze at something or someone and be captured with awe by what you see. And chances are, when you look at someone's marriage in that sense and you say, man, they've got a beautiful marriage, you're looking at one of these or maybe multiple of these 15 verbs on display here and saying, man, they have such patience with each other. There's such kindness. They, they, they bear up. And yeah, you're, you're a realist. You understand that that's not always the case. But generally speaking, you're saying, this is what I see. And so therefore you say, this is a beautiful marriage. So the first thing I want you to see this morning is that Paul says that what he wants to pervade the church is beauty that can only come through love. But the second thing really follows from that, and that is the necessity of it the oxygen in the room, the oxygen for our lungs. So now we're going to go back and look at verses 1 through 3 together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth. And this is a church that is rich with gifts. Now, there are two different types of gifts. There are spiritual gifts, and there's actually a whole list of gifts that are giving elsewhere in this letter. For instance, he talks about the gift of evangelism, the gift of prayer, for instance, the gift of administration, which I jokingly call the gift of spreadsheets, right? And some of you, by the way, you have that gift. So there's a whole set of spiritual gifts, and, and you have some of those spiritual gifts. You may not have all of them, but you have some of them. By the way, we have a class here called Discover Your Design. If you've never taken it, let me encourage you to do so, where you can discover what your gifts are. But, but there are a whole, whole set of gifts apart from spiritual gifts. And so for some of you, you are, you are great leaders in your, in your marketplace ministry, so to speak, in, in your workplace. You you are your parents, your gifted parents. You just have the natural skill or you enjoy working with children. You're, you're a teacher. 
by trade. You're a great communicator. All of you, whether you are aware this morning of your gifts, you have wondrous gifts. But I want you to hear this morning, and I think this is what Paul is saying, that the purpose of your gifts is not primarily to enrich you. The purpose of your gifts is to enrich the world around you. And the only way that's possible is to come from a foundation of love here. He talks about tongues, for instance. Now, this was a spiritual gift, and I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of whether or not that, that spiritual gift exists today. It basically was this idea that the Holy Spirit gives a, what was sometimes referred to as a spiritual language, a, a language that, that only through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit could someone understand, not as we normally think of language, but a different kind of language. And what Paul is saying, and this is evidently a church that was practicing that. In fact, he says elsewhere in the letter that they were. And Paul himself uh, had the gift of tongues, as it's sometimes referred to. But what Paul says, it doesn't matter how profound your gift is. I mean, if someone were to break out in tongues, if, if, if theologically that's what the position that you had, that, that the gift were to continue, therefore you, you saw that happen, it would be pretty profound. It would be pretty paranormal, we might say, or supernatural. But Paul says it doesn't matter. It's meaningless. Because at the end of the day, if you're, you're not, if you're not wed to love with the practice of that gift, it amounts to nothing. And so I want you to hear this because most commentators point this out. That Paul brings this up in the way he does because he's being very diplomatic. He even uses the first person, if, if I don't have love here, then I'm missing out. And then he uses the third person you know, as well here. But the second person, you, is not being used because he's being very diplomatic. Most commentators will agree that in the church of Corinth, everything that's mentioned here is the problem in Corinth. They weren't being patient. They weren't bearing up with each other. These gifts were missing. And, and I say that because, because two things here I want you to see is the necessity. Two things. Number one here is our witness. Our witness is on, on display. Our witness is up for the world to see. And when it's missing, the church is not distinctive. And love is what is intended to make, at least agape love, to make our witness distinctive. Two weeks ago, I was just um, perusing some church headlines, and, and uh, I won't tell you who it is, because if I did, you would recognize his name, some of you, but an incredibly gifted preacher was defrocked recently, just a couple weeks ago. Th that means basically he lost his ministerial license. His ability to, to preach and lead in that church, he, he no longer is at that church, he's no longer in that denomination's ministry, in fact. And, and the reason why wasn't because of a sexual failure, often that's what we hear in the headlines, it was another type of moral failure, if you will, it was that he was a tyrant over his staff. He was incredibly harsh. He was a, a man who was constantly filled with anger. And he split that staff and then he split that church, and now that church is really suffering deeply as a result of this man who had incredible gifts but had not love. It's sobering for me as a pastor to, to realize that therefore the grace of God go I. That just because I'm pastor doesn't mean that, that that couldn't be the route that I would take in life even in ministry. Paul, That's Paul's point here that none of us, none of us are above that that we can easily separate the reason for our gifts, 
the power for our gifts from the practice of our gifts. It's why in verse 1, by the way, he, he says that if you don't have love, you're like a noisy clanging gong or cymbal. It wasn't that, that Paul was against musical instruments like gongs and cymbals. It was that in the pagan temples of his day, that was the primary means by which they woke the gods. It's how they got the attention of the gods. They, they would clang noisy gongs and cymbals together. And, and he says it, it, that, 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 that these things, these gifts without love, it's sort of like these na- noisy gongs and cymbals. It's discordant. There's no harmony. There's, there's no beauty in the chords. Some of you are not thinking pagan temples. You're thinking about your children who are learning to play the drums or guitar in the basement growing up. You know who you are. Some of you are saying, no, I was that child, actually. I was the one who drove my parents crazy musically speaking, right? And it was this noisy gong, this clanging of cymbals, as it were, right? Because you hadn't yet found the chords. You hadn't yet found the harmony, right? And, and that's what Paul is saying here by example. He's saying, like, you, you need that harmony. You need the, the notes to work together. And so you have to have love with those gifts in order to make the music, as it were, you see. He says, so our witness is on display, Right? And man, some of us in this room, we talked about this even at staffing, some of us have experienced that. I mean, all of us have, have experienced that, that failure, right? None of us are above that. We were talking about that in staffing this week, and I, I shared with the staff something that happened when I was in college. I, I was, as some of you know, a political science major, and I was doing a couple different internships, internships a couple different years in Washington. And I was serving, serving for a lobbying organization just two blocks off of Capitol Hill, and in 1992, that summer, there was a famous decision that was handed down regarding abortion rights. It was called Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And, and so the Supreme Court was just two blocks away from where I was. And so breaking news came across the television that we had on at the organization that I was working for. And so as soon as I saw what was happening in the Supreme Court, I, I literally, I just got up and left. You know, I was an intern, and I, and I booked it down to the Supreme Court. And there on the steps of the Supreme Court was managed pandemonium. I mean, you had everyone and their mother there on the front steps of the Supreme Court going at it with each other. You had abortion rights supporters, and you had pro-life supporters. And, and they, were, they were with their placards and their signs, and many of them were, were yelling, and there were angry conversations taking place, if you can call them conversations. And in particular, there was a... There was a, a guy and a girl my age, actually, on the steps right there. And it's one of those things that happened literally 28 years ago now, but I remember it like it was yesterday. I can visually see where I was on the steps, and I can visually see who they were. I can see their faces, and I remember the conversation, at least parts of it. And, and they're presenting their, their positions on this issue to each other, and it's increasingly vocal and increasingly vitriolic. And I'll never forget what he said to her. One point, just out of exasperation, probably out of anger, clearly. He looked at her and he said, we don't care about you as a woman, we care about the unborn child. And he walked away. And there I was, left with this woman, who literally at this point was in tears. She was so angry. And so fed up and herself exasperated. And in that moment there, suddenly I'm, I'm thrust into her presence as it were. It's just the two of us. Even though there are hundreds of people around her, it seemed like it was just the two of us. And I said to her, I said, I want you to know that is not the right to life position. Biblically. 
didn't use that word, but that's what I was intending to say to her. I said, actually, it is not just the care for the unborn child, but it's the care for the mother who, who may not know adequately what her options are, and she needs deeply compassion from the community as well. If you have not love, I mean, this young man, even, it doesn't matter what his principal position was on the issue. It doesn't matter what the church's position is on that issue per se. It doesn't matter whether it's racial, political. It doesn't matter that if, we, that if we are not bound to love, if our hearts don't drip with compassion, even for those that we disagree with, Paul says you amount to nothing. And there are many today who look at the church and that is their opinion of the church. Right or wrong, that is their perception of the church. I think this passage speaks to us in a million ways in 2020. And so the question I have here is, is what is your witness? What would people say in your home, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace? But it leads to the second thing, lastly, here regarding the necessity, and that is the motivation matters for what you do here. It's very important that we see that. Look in verse 3 again. What does he say there? If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body, excuse me, if I give away all that I have, right? But I have not love, I amount to nothing. And if I deliver up all my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. What's he saying there? He's saying, he's taking the most extreme examples. He's taking those who would take a vow of poverty. Imagine that today, given your current financial place, what if you just gave it all away? What if you gave it up, you took a, like the monks in monastic communities, where they literally take vows of poverty, where they give away all their possessions? You would say, that's pretty radical, Right? to sell my home, to give up the, the career that I have perhaps, but, and to give that all away, that, that's pretty extreme, that's pretty radical. And, and certainly you would say, boy, to give up literally your life? In Paul's day and age, martyrdom was common, especially, especially in the first three centuries after Paul. It was very common. And he, and what he's saying here is that you can literally give up your life for the wrong reasons, and it won't matter. Giving up your life, in the eyes of God, it has no impact because you did it for the wrong reason. Maybe you did that of contempt. Maybe you gave up all your well-being because you wanted to perform before God and make a name for yourself, that people would recognize the extremes at which you're to go. He says, but if you don't do it for, as the basis of love, it amounts to nothing. Man, we've all experienced this. We've all experienced strings being attached to our motivations. When I was planning City Churches 13 years ago, I was on staff at Perimeter Church, and there was a man who heard me up on stage one day. I was doing the liturgy, and I mentioned this vision of planning a church in, in the city of Atlanta. And he, he came up to me afterwards. He literally ran me down, and he's like, hey, hey, I, I want to I get to know you better. I'm, I'm interested in this work. Great. And we met once, and he said, I want to give you $30,000 to help plant this church. Now, that was a big chunk of change. Certainly for me, it was. And over a three-year period, I'm going to give you this money. And so we met, and uh, five or six months after, after we had first met, and he had committed this money to us, uh, he said, hey, I've got a friend who's an evangelist. He's a musician, and he uses his music as a platform of evangelism. He said, me at a coffee house in the city, you want to come. And I had a family commitment that night. Now, my problem, a pastor friend of mine said, was that I gave him too much detail as to why I said no. I should have just said, not available. But instead, I said, I've got a family commitment going on there. And what happened next was so traumatic for me that I, 13 years later, I remember where I was when this conversation took place. It's one of those things. You remember those traumatic things and where you were when those things happened? This is one of those for me. 
boy, he laid into me. And he said, well, well, if you can't prioritize evangelism above your family, you know, if you can't commit to that, then you don't need the money. I don't want to support a church like this. And I was floored. I mean, he was livid and raged with me. Now, I did, I did have a, a very confrontational conversation with him after that uh, to, to challenge his integrity. But I'll never forget what he said to me that day, right? And I realized, man, there were strings attached to his gift. He wasn't given from a place of just pure generosity. So seeing that the church would be extended into the city, that there would be the flourishing of God's kingdom in the city. No, he wanted power and control over my life. He wanted some semblance of control and power and influence over the direction of me and that church. Strings attached. Paul says there can be no strings at all. George Whitfield, 18th century pastor, he put it this way, before you can speak peace to your hearts, you must not only be troubled for the sins of your life, the sin of your nature, these are the outward things that are obvious, in other words, but likewise for the sins of your best duties and performances. You must be brought to see that all your duties, all your righteousness, put them all together, are so far from recommending you to God. So let me ask you, what are your motivations for, for your generosity? What are your, your motivations before, as you live your life and your family and your workplace? Can you say that it is love and love alone that generates the work of your hands, the meditation of your heart? Now, Paul, this is the standard, which leads here now to the last thing. Now, maybe you can understand why the third and last point here is the impossibility of love. Because the standard here, Paul says in, the, in writing to the church of Rome and to that book called Romans, he, he says, for the wages of sin is death. All have fallen short of the glory of God. No one with, withholds this standard. This is the standard of relationship with God. Are these 15 verbs, as it were, just regarding love alone, much less all the other virtues and ethics. But this is the standard here. And he's like, 15 things, what does your life look like? And I will tell you that as I look at my own life, I can say, no wonder it's impossible because I, there's this gap between what I have vowed in my life as a Christian and how I live my life. The reason why this passage is so popular at weddings is because of what I said earlier, that, that it is a great definition of what love is to be between a man and a woman. But it's so ironic, isn't it, that the very passage that ministers give at weddings is also impossible to fulfill apart from God. I mean, imagine this. You don't have to be married this morning to understand this, but you can imagine that if you were married, and for those of us who are married, imagine your vows that you, you profess to your beloved. Imagine those vows are on your mirror. Every morning, right before you got up to go to work, you looked at those vows and you said, this is what my day should look like. This is it. Not just with my, my spouse, but, but these are attitudes that should reflect all of my life. But certainly this is what... And then, before you got in bed, you go back in the bathroom to brush your teeth, and those vows are right there, right there, right there on your mirror. What would you see? Chances are, nine out of ten days, you would see a gap, wouldn't you? Oh, man, I, I was patient, but I wasn't kind today. I, uh, I didn't endure the frustrations I had with my spouse. 
I didn't, I, I, I didn't bear up all things. Like You'd see there is a gap here. And the question isn't, do we fail the standard that Paul gives us here? But what do we do with that failure? Here's the good news. You see, a lot of sermons end with those first two points. Let me tell you about the beauty of love. Let me tell you about how, how necessary it is, but then they don't give you the power. And the good news for you is that you don't have the power to fulfill the standard of love, the law of love, but Jesus did. Because who was Jesus? See, it's interesting, isn't it? In his passage, what does Paul do? Paul actually personifies love. Did you see that? Love is patient. Love is kind. He's building a picture of a character. The character of one who loves God purely and perfectly. And elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us the answer. It is Jesus. It is Jesus who is the personification of love. As John says in one of his letters, God is love. And it was Jesus, verse 3, you surrender your body, but if you don't do it with love, it means nothing. Jesus surrendered his body for the purpose of fulfilling his vows. See, Jesus, according to the book of Ephesians, something else that Paul wrote, he says that Jesus is the bridegroom. And who's the bride? It's you. It's me. It's us, the church. Jesus Christ is the only one who fulfilled the law of love perfectly. Insert his name. Jesus is patient and kind. He does not envy or boast. He's not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable, resentful. He doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but he rejoices with the truth. He bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Isn't that truly the good news for you? It's Jesus. You insert his name, and it's Jesus who's done that for you. He's borne your sin. He's, he's buried up sin for you so that you can be reconciled back to him because he loves his bride, the church. That is the good news of this passage, and that is what empowers you now because he calls you now through Jesus. The Father says, you are my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. How can he say that in light of how you failed the standard of love? Because Jesus didn't. And so he says, you are my beloved daughter. And what that literally means is that you're to be loved, beloved, to be loved permanently. This is, what's amazing is, is that, that, that in verse 13, and I didn't mention that, it says, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the grace of these is love. It's love that is the only thing that lasts because faith and hope one day will be satisfied. One day we'll have no more fear, no more sorrow, no more tears. Heaven and earth will be one. And so the object of her faith, the object of her hope, which is with this perfect relationship with God, that is the longing of, or should be the longing of our hearts. That's going to go away because that's going to be fulfilled. But love is that which remains, that which is permanent, as it were. And the only way that you can truly love like that is you have to be trained in love. The studies, of, longitudinal studies have been done of, of orphanages and, and what happens when someone doesn't have a relationship of love over a long period of time. It's harder for them to love later on in life. It can be done by the grace of God, but it's more difficult. But when you have a loving relationship from day one, you're trained in love, you're secure, you're grounded in your being, you know who you are, and as a result of that, you're now free to love like Paul 
demonstrates here, which leads me back to Mr. Rogers in closing here. I mentioned the, uh, the, the film version of it. It was based upon this, this journalist who wrote this long-form article for Esquire magazine. And this is really brought out well in the film, but it, I've also read the article, and maybe you've read it as well. Just a great storyline. This man was incredibly cynical, this author. And, and, uh, and he, he basically was there to write an expose of Mr. Rogers. Imagine that. His goal was to expose Mr. Rogers as a fraud, in other words. Yeah, this guy can't be the real deal. Like, there's, like he's going to break down. And there's this one scene in the, in the film where, where he gets on the, on the phone initially with this author's journalist, and, and Mr. Rogers says, says to him, I think his name was Tom, and he says, Tom, I, I want you to know that, um, that right now you are the most important person in my life. The reason why I'm on the phone with you right now is because I want to give you my undivided attention. I want you to know that there's no one that I want to be with right now more than you. And, and in the film, if you've seen it, Tom's like, this guy's not for real. No way. No way. But by the end of the film, he begins to believe that he really is that valuable to Mr. Rogers, to Fred. I want you to know that as much as that's true for Mr. Rogers, he's a mere human being, and he's, he's mortal, and his failures and foibles, how much more so for you with the Father? This is the last thing I want to ask you. Is it, what, what is it as a church family? What is it that you, you want to see happen here at City Church moving forward? Here we are at the end of this series where we talked about race a lot, didn't we? And it certainly it's true about, about race. It's also true about politics. Like, what do we want to practice here collectively and individually? But, but I want to ask you here at the close, what do you want to see happen? Because if Paul is right here, this is a dynamic verb that should be practiced amongst us. And why, not because, because if we don't, uh, we're screwed. No, but because we've already been loved by the Father. We've already been made beloved. Now, have a place of security and grounding. Now we're free to love like we're intended to. So may we be a church family that loves well. May we love this city well. This city is full of fear right now. Many of us are full of fear right now because of the pandemic and other issues related to 2020. We're about to pass from 2020 to 2021. Thanks be to God, right? But what is it that we want in 21? What do we want this city to experience? Perfect love drives out fear. So may we be that church that puts perfect love on display, that drives out the fear of pandemics, of racial hostility and division, political turmoil, fill in the blank, whatever's heaviest on your hearts. May our perfect love, may the perfect love of the Father in us do that for our community. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that what is impossible to men is not impossible for you. Perfect love drove out death. It drove out death from our state of affairs with you, and it reconciled no longer enemies, but because you bore up for us, you endured all things, including the ultimate endurance of the cross. Lord Jesus, now we are connected once again to you as sons and daughters. Father, we have a lot of love. We have a lot of compassion to give. If we, if we could just recognize and realize the power of your gospel in us. So Lord, what we need for you is to drive out sin and, and, the, uh, 
and the self-centeredness that pervades our being so much. Lord, replace it with your perfect love. And we pray that fear, anxiety in 2020 would turn into hope, encouragement, most of all, the presence of love long-term, not just in our church community, but in our great city that we love. So may we do this to honor your name, and we do this now in proclamation that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We praise the name of Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Amen.